0: Hello, and welcome to PSA Today. It's Privacy, Surveillance, and Anonymity. It is Wednesday, November 5th, November 25th. This is our 20, I want to say our 26th episode, Kalia. I'm here with Kalia Young, my co-founder, my co-host. Hello, Kalia.
1: Hi, Seth.
0: And we're very excited to have another longtime friend of Kalia's. Jeff Oresti, who is the founder of InternetBar.org, the institute, which is a multidisciplinary institute dedicated to fair and free justice for all. Is that right, Jeff?
2: That's what we're aimed for. Yep. That's so great. So
0: welcome. Welcome to our show. Welcome as a fellow Boston sports mass hole like me. <laughs> um, tell us about your project and, and kind of how you met Kalia and, and where things are, how things are going for you
2: the um, project has been a lot of fun about uh, an international business lawyer by background and in, in 2005 uh decided that it was time to set up a bar association on the internet since cyber law was a global uh set of rules that was starting to turn into a lot of local and sovereign sets of rules that were in conflict with each other and Uh, access to justice was a real problem for most people who couldn't afford to get into the legal systems. And so I was motivated to move in a direction to make cyber laws uh, accessible to all and uh, focus on people in the social justice space. Uh, And identity was something I was always very interested in. And uh, it was something I wrote about quite a bit in the early days of cyber law. And uh, That led me to joining the Internet Identity Workshop uh, at some point as I met Joy Searles and Doc Searles, who pointed me in that direction. And once you get into the Internet Identity Workshop, Kalia is front and center. So at some point, uh, I made my way over and said hello. And uh, then we started talking. And now we're starting to do some things together.
0: Can you corroborate that?
1: I do. Jeff is working on some fantastic things. We just, um, collaborated on putting on the internet bar summit focused on building a justice layer of the internet. Um, but the thing that I was really like was new to me when I was talking to Jeff, he's like, well, I wrote some of the first articles about cyber law and I, and sort of thinking about how the world of, Laws that are rooted in the terrestrial system translate into cyberspace. So, I wonder, Jeff, if you could tell us a little bit about those early articles you wrote and like how they were received.
2: Well, being in Boston, you know, we had this wonderful place called the Boston Computer Society. But before that, you had, you know, the MIT, well, before it was the MIT Media Lab, it was sort of like the MIT Railroad Station where they had all the You know, all the engineers who uh, were playing around with switches and other things. It's sort of the beginning of computers. So we were in a ripe place for people who are interested in all things uh, computer based. And when hyperlinks came around, and I guess it was the uh, late 80s, a whole bunch of people were gathering together at Boston Computer Society talking about things. And the cyber law issue started to pop up. And people were talking about intellectual property law, not so much about identity. It was more about ownership issues and intellectual property that was crossing borders. So there were a lot of discussions about um, in the role of copyright in the digital space. And that sort of started you know, generating a lot of conversation uh, amongst each other. And that's when the whole field of digital signatures started to pop into, into the mix, And I was very active in the American Bar Association at the time as well. And there was a cyberspace law committee that I got active with. And um, so you had all this incredibly talented group of uh, people, a lot of them business lawyers at that point. That's, That's who was driving the field. And the big technology, they were all getting their heads around with digital signatures because that would change the way that they could do business. And... There were no norms as to how you were going to get to a digital signature. And then the governments got involved. And all of a sudden you had dozens of uh, countries, um, industries, all debating about digital signatures. So it became clear to me early on um, that this was going to be a space where there would be a lot of conflict. And yet it was the kind of space where there could be harmonization because the Internet was global. And everybody was connected to each other, so I was interested in the harmonization point of view. And honestly, all the lawyers were looking at me like I was nut, saying, "You know, we make money on conflict, not on harmonization. So why are you driving harmonization?" So I kept quiet for a while to think of next steps. Um, but the what, early, year, what year was this? This was uh, well the very first group of people I work with go back to the late 1980s, and that was VeriSign. You might remember them. And a fellow by the name of Michael Baum, who was from lived in Cambridge at the time, uh, ended up uh, on the West Coast, and he did quite well. Uh, but he was one of the very first people who talked about electronic data interchange. He wrote whole manuals. I still have some of the manuals he wrote. Uh, the field of electronic data interchange, which is about... Uh, how you move risk and responsibility from one place to another, and digital signatures are always in the middle of that, and conditions are in the middle of that. Well, in a supply chain, uh, which is where electronic data interchange functioned, he laid it out as clearly as anybody else had laid it out. and He wrote a book on it, and I read it. And um, so that gave me my first exposure. That was the late 80s, but it wasn't until the mid-90s that the digital signature law started popping up And, of course, that's when um, people started getting online. America Online started popping up. And uh, the first question of what's your identity online began to uh, show up. And uh, for whatever the reason, I could see pretty clearly that a mess was about to happen um, because the, the, the subject of privacy was being talked about. The fact that you could go from a legal system in the terrestrial world where everybody is one person, if you try to have more than one identity in the real world, you're going to be in front of a judge explaining yourself, Uh, or certainly in front of a, a police officer and, you know, what's my ID? And you give them a fake ID, you know, it's all trouble. But in the online world, it seemed to be that you could go in without any problems and create multiple identities. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, I wrote some articles that that's not the right way to do it. And nobody really listened, but I got them published and put them out there. They were not long articles or anything like that. But I saw it as a, an important philosophical and legal matter that we carry over the legal system from the old world into the online world. But that was not about to happen. And uh, so those were the first uh, that was the late. uh that was the late nineties, early 2000, when we started seeing those issues pop up.
0: So, um, what about me? You know, one of the things I think, as you look back over, you know, 20 years, um, in terms of like law on the internet, I mean, I guess it triggers for me music, right? Cause I sort of saw what happened with Napster. Um, I got involved, um, actually worked with Hank Barry on, he was our lawyer for Attention Trust with Steve Gilmore um, and sort of kind of lived a little bit that vicariously through him. And then even when I started working on Turntable FM, you know, the first thing we had to do is deal with all the record labels. Um, How do you think about music, you know, as it relates to this kind of um, justice layer? And was that sort of the canary in the coal mine for all of this? Or is it just sort of a a separate satellite.
2: Well, music, uh, actually saved internet bar. Um, there you go. Uh, I started by thinking lawyers would be the change agents. Okay. Uh, it didn't work out that way. And I mean, I was one of the founders of the American bar associations tech show. I was its first chair for five years. Uh, we did it in Dallas and Boston. This was the mid eighties. Uh, so that's pretty well known in Massachusetts. Uh, I had created something called the Computer College in the 80s. So lawyers knew what I was up to. And I had the presidents of bar associations all backing the work we were doing. We originally set up Internet Bar. So we came up with a whole institute for training lawyers how to use the new digital skills. And we had the president of the bar supporting us. We even had judges supporting our work. No lawyers showed up. I mean, we we had courses we had lots of courses and i tell you let me I, I was so frustrated uh that was the time i could have thrown the whole thing away but i um you know wasn't going to do that um so we all gathered in washington dc a whole bunch of us we had uh, this uh, at ropes and gray you know who they are so you know and the washington offices we had people dialing in from around the world so long before zoom we were zooming And, um, everyone said, you're focusing on the wrong crowd. You should be focusing on the people you want to serve your clients. If you want to make change that you need to, and you think that the change is going to benefit people in the, uh, developing world, which is a term we don't like to use. So places like Africa, places like, you know, India, China, and so forth, then what would it, you know, what would be of advantage to them and how could we connect to all of them? Um. Uh, We ran a three-day program at Tufts University on eradication of poverty a a couple of months later after that, which I was asked to lead. And the subject of music kept coming up again and again as, you know, what binds everybody in the world. One of our kids is is a composer, and uh, she uh, runs a technology music art studio at Overland College right now. So music was definitely around. and. For whatever the reason, I uh, was good at picking domain names, so I grabbed the domain name Peacetones at the time, and I was disabused of the notion of turning it into a ringtones kind of thing. I was told that would not be very smart. I would end up in the same place as the original institute if we stuck with ringtones. Just go for the music, I was told. So uh, we started with music, and we said, let's make a fair trade music model. In fact, I know this is... uh, This is audio, but um, I'll just show you because you can see it. This was one of our very first uh, uh, cards, Empowering Communities Through the Arts. And so uh, we went to – we were given the opportunity by the World Justice Project to uh, set up a program, which we did in Haiti and Brazil, um, Sierra Leone, where we went to those local communities, found artists, uh began to train them as though they were global citizens because we're all global citizens. And at the time, what we said about law was consider laws like you were walking into a cafeteria of food, except instead of food, you've got every law of the world. And you can pick and choose what you want because we can all do that. You know, I mean, if I have a... a Some music. I can uh, register my U.S. copyrights. I can use the World Intellectual Property tools to register that music internationally. Uh, I can go to other countries. So why not make that tool available to a kid from Haiti? And so that's what we did. And then we started to use contests uh, on Facebook to uh, actually went to Haiti a couple times. We found artists. We ran like American Idol programs uh, in in Haiti, in Port-au-Prince, uh, we got artists to come out of everywhere to participate in our program. And then we used uh, Facebook contests to start. Oh.
1: Uh-oh. Just stay here. He'll come back.
2: I saw him disappear.
1: That's what happens when the Internet.
2: Um... Says goodbye to you for the moment. Mm-hmm. It gives me a chance to think quickly to bring it back to music instead of the contest. Contest was fun. There's so many stories here, Kalia, I can't tell you. There's a book in all this. If there
1: is you should get get one of those ghostwriters to come and then you just talk to them and they write it for you
2: it's possible to do it that way i have a feeling that if i do enough homework i read a lot about how books come together from different places i you know i i'll read the acknowledgments in books you know, just to see how they came together, who did what. Um, I know I aspire to be a writer of that type at some point. Um, But the people who do it have been doing it. That's what they've done for 25 years of their life. They write every day. They get up for an hour or two and they write and they write and they research and they write and they write and that's, they have an audience. And, you know, I don't know that that's what's in me talking is more in me. I think you know that already.
1: <laughs> well, but that's why, you know, and there's also, you can now with like Syrian stuff, you can just talk and it writes.
2: One I, of the guys- I
1: personally don't turn Siri on, but I've thought about turning it on to do dictation. Um, but you can write now yourself by just talking.
2: Some of this, yeah. I, I I came across something recently which, uh, who was it that they were talking about? Um, oh, Michael J. Fox and his book, because, you know, there's somebody, the, the new book that he just came out with. Um, so the New York Times Book Review wrote about the book and how it came to be because he has somebody around him. Uh, yeah. And uh, so. And I could see a lot of similarities uh, with the way he functions and the way I function, which is stuff's coming from everywhere. And you need to have like a, a card, a few cards on the wall that are sort of the top level of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: then, you know, as the ideas come up, you just put your post its underneath those ideas. Okay. okay so we had all these artists. They came, they performed. We then used the Facebook platform to generate votes from around the world. And we had an artist, a young man named Juanito, who had never left uh, Haiti before. Uh, He won the contest. And uh, I won't go into the long story, the short stories, as he became famous as a result of winning the contest, putting together an album, came to Boston. Just an incredible story. Um, And so, You know in a sense if you really think about it i had really done not much more than what my parents had done when they went overseas and you know bought a rug from somebody in the village i had helped one artist get his music out it's you know the 21st century version of the same thing i wanted it to scale i wanted in cyber law was the path to making it scale if you had harmonized systems and you could have a global audience Um, but you also had to have different relationships between the artists and their uh, customers. Actually, um, very similar to the relationship the Grateful Dead had that we're familiar with. You know, just don't worry about all the law in the middle of it. You know, put the people who can record your stuff right in the front row. Make sure that you put the ones with the best recording tape materials right there. So, you know, tell them to bootleg and, and then keep selling other stuff. Okay, because now you have an audience. And so we had that kind of a a set of presentations, but we wanted to expand it and build it even further. So we called it fair trade music, uh, which would give the artists more of what they would. uh, What we got was it was really a sense that music and the human economy really had a very important relationship to each other. uh, But the economy somehow gave the musicians nothing. And that just didn't seem right. Um, so we were going to tackle that, tackle that area. And that's where we focused our energies for the next several years. Uh, and we did a lot of other work as well in the legal aid space, quite a bit of work in the legal aid space where we work with domestic violence victims with, uh, veterans and so forth. But music was always underpinning everything. Uh, and our peace tones project, uh, uh, continues to grow uh, to this day. Um, And now the human rights community is uh, beginning to look at our work as well uh, because they can see that opportunities for young people in the world to perform their music give them avenues to earn a living if, in fact, we can get, you know, the global audience to their doorsteps, uh, which we have successfully been able to do several times. But we want to build it into, into a movement. And... And then it's private contracts that underpin it. So um, that's the international business lawyer way of doing everything, right? You have private contracts that are legal in the places where you go. And if you keep the disputes out of courts, then it's a a harmonized system. The minute you end up with a dispute and you have to pick a court, now you have an issue because, you know, where's the dispute going to be decided under what law? That's always going to end up favoring, uh, the party in the contract whose court and lo- legal system is being chosen. But if you can have an online system, then it's very different. Now you can, it's like eBay. You resolve your disputes online. You build it into the framework of, uh, your contractual relationships that you stay away from the court systems. Uh, and so far so good, you know, that, you know, that's worked. Um, uh, so that's basically sort of the, the underpinning of a justice layer is take a private contract model, introduce people to each other, use technologies to connect people, which are already happening, uh, and then put a legal layer on top of it. Um, and of course that's been done more than once. Creative commons is a good example of how you do something like that, where you have an underpinning machine code, you have a legal layer on top of that, and then you have English language, you know, representations of what it is. So, um, but we can expect that. On in some, in some way
0: you're starting to saying like the music was one of the prototypes for this kind of justice layer that now, as we kind of connect the dots here that, you know, sort of identity, the identity layer and the privacy layer can live on top of that. Kalia.
1: Yes. I mean, that's, that's, I think that, um, it has a lot of promise, right? In the sense, it's everybody understands music. Everybody would like better models to pay artists because they understand the current models aren't necessarily working for them, unless they're superstars. And how do we, how do we use the new identity tools to make this? Um, all work really well. I don't know that we have all the answers yet. It's not like we're like, here's the architecture, but there's definitely a lot of really promising components can be pulled together in new ways to change how music flows and remuneration for artists flows.
0: So one of the things I remember uh, sort of doing, not quite finishing in 2005 or six around the time of attention trust is I, I, Talked to a, uh, he passed away, a great um, patent lawyer named Jeff Brandt, um, who had done a lot of work with um, Jay Walker from Priceline um, in terms of patenting really interesting, innovative internet business models. And one of the things I talked to him about was um, could people copyright their clickstream, right? So that if a search engine or advertising platform were to sort of take your data, that they would be violating your copyright and that your clickstream is kind of like a music, is an expression of yourself, almost like a musical composition.
2: So that's where this new identity piece fits in. And I've always, um, when I wrote about this in a law review article, I essentially said in 2006 that. In order to participate in the work that we're doing, you need a secure, trusted identity for which you are responsible. Essentially, uh, for protecting everything about you from that, from the creation of that. I'm going to leave the issues aside of youth and and older people. I'm just going to assume that you've got, you know, you're an adult and you have the ability to to do this. You can protect your
0: Still here. Leave aside the issues of youth.
2: Yeah, so what I was saying, well, okay. What I was saying is that you had mentioned the idea of copywriting your clickstream essentially so that you could create a, you know, essentially a right that you would have if somebody uses that clickstream to monetize it and benefit from it in some way. Is that the point you were uh, getting at Seth?
0: Yeah. And, and also just to protect your identity, right. To sort of, to lay claim to an identity um, like you're talking about, how do you connect the, you know, the identity layer to musical rights. But this idea of, um, you know, if I, if I, if I own my data, if I own my uh, digital identity as expressed through all the clicks and all the behavior that I make in a browser or something, I should own that. And if someone infringes upon that, there's some redress. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but that's how I was thinking about it.
2: So that's exactly the way I think about it, except that when I uh, came upon this uh, self-sovereign identity technology, and I drive the people crazy in this space when I talk to them, but I understood one thing, which was, this is like an invisibility cloak if you do it right. OK, it seems to me that if you have in the if you're able to create uh, identity in a self-sovereign identity framework, you literally are in full control of that clickstream that you're creating, um, you know, and every relationship that you have is one in which you determine your relationship with the other. Now, it's one thing to say that if you're dealing with. Uh, Facebook, and you're coming in from the United States, you either clicked, I accepted their terms of service, or you don't. You either participate in their community, or you don't. So that's, you know, you can't really function uh, in this justice layer of this justice place in the world and make the changes I'm talking about. But if you're in Africa, or if you're in Haiti, or if you're in uh brazil um you have a different justice framework that you can work with uh the easiest ones we found to work with and i just call them justice greenfields just simply because it's easier to give people the idea that you know justice in those areas of the world pretty flexible in terms of somebody being able to own their clickstream so to speak and then actually taking control over it uh and now you're able to, uh, be in full control over your data. Nobody else can get that data unless you give it to them. If you give it to them, then it's under what terms and conditions you give it to, you give it to them. And since you don't, yes, you do have Facebook in all these parts of the world. They are showing up. It is being used. I've been in enough places in, uh, Zambia and Bangladesh in the last couple of years where Facebook is everywhere. Um, but there are, there are alternatives if you want to, you know, you know, cut them out. And I don't think that Facebook thinks a lot of its money-making opportunities in those parts of the world. It's just a service that's, you know, that's available to these people. Uh, so if we gave them an alternative, then they will be in control over their click streams, so to speak. But adding the type of thing you're talking about, where you could essentially create Uh, an old law model, a copyright law model that says, I own my clickstream. That would be an addition. I wouldn't walk away from that. I'd add that to the toolbox. Uh, That'd be a good addition. You know, if you have old law and new law that can get you to the same place where I'm in charge of myself and I can control it. And if somehow, you know, my clickstream gets out there and I didn't want it to, but I have a copyright, well, now I can protect it. So I would certainly embrace that too.
0: Um, so one of the things that, you know, we mentioned earlier, you know, when we, before we started talking was, um, what about AI and, and what about, um, kind of robot lawyers? You know, I mentioned do not pay, um, you know, how much of, you know, so one of the, um, you know, I think about layers of the internet, I think about, you know, scalability and, um, you know, it's one thing to, you know, scale cloud computing or scale, um, you know, TCP IP or all the different layers have kind of, you know, built up to where we are right now, um, you know, scaling the legal system is tricky because, um, you know, it just feels like it's based on um, human decision-making and it's based on, you know, conflict and agreement. And obviously the blockchains tried to solve some of it with smart contracts, but how do you think about um, automation technologies and, this kind of justice layer that you're talking about?
2: Well, for sure, just to say something very briefly about AI, it's gonna change everything. I mean, lawyers have embraced chatbots, which are sort of the mouthpiece for what AI may look like for a while. Uh, It's just right now the lawyers program what those chatbots say and do, and it's pretty straightforward to map them you know, to a legal system, we've run hackathons where essentially you'll sit there and there'll be lawyers mapping out like in the traffic cases, uh, what are the questions they need to be asked and answered in order to determine what the responsibilities are of each side? Uh, you know, the person driving the car and the arresting officer and, you know, what's the court going to decide and, and so forth. And, you know, so those things can be easily mapped out, um, But once you start getting into questions of decision making uh, that might involve, you know, a lawyer sitting down with their client to figure out certain aspects of how to approach a case because there is a bigger picture involved, Um, you know, various kinds of deals that can be made and so forth. That piece of it is really a function of how uh, our legal system works today, Uh, because that's where, you know, that's where you end up uh, in front of a court. You know, who are you? Are you an 18 year old and this is your first offense? Or are you about ready to close a hundred million dollar deal to sell the company and you were out doing stupid things? We'll leave it at that. And you got caught. And now, you know, it's you know, you're walking into the day of the closing and arresting officers are all around. It's not the right time. So, you know, the, the lawyer's role in those situations is a function of, you know, trying to protect the client's best interests in light of the overall circumstances. But if you're talking about AI and, you know, the basic situations, what blockchain does, uh, you're going to have this uh, lessening of the need for lawyers to be performing what essentially is a ministerial function of saying what the law is and how it applies to you. Um, And that's going to go on and on and on. But when you recognize that only thirty to thirty to forty percent of people, depending upon which study you look at, have access to the legal systems, lawyers, courts, and so forth, and this is whether it's the United States or the world, it's the same thing. Access to justice is a mess, and and it's not baseball where uh, one third average, three thirty three average is a good average for the year. You know, access to justice needs to be pretty close to one hundred percent. Uh, for it to work right. And I just don't know that the system is going to get fixed uh, in that way. And so what you find are a lot of these uh, technology tools coming out that are replacing what a lawyer might do uh, so that people don't need to get to courts. They just pay a ticket or a fine, or it gets uh, written off depending upon the circumstances. So what we're trying to do is say that You know, think of everyone talks about the cloud, but, you know, the cloud is just a bunch of servers located everywhere in the world. And yet if you actually think of it like a a country, uh, it's a brand new country. And the only people in in the country right now are the folks that are doing uh, really bad things in a lot of bad places, the sex traffickers, the human traffickers you know, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of good things, you know, I mean, just think of an old age home where people play bridge, but they don't have anybody who they can play bridge with anymore. But somebody says here, let me show you how you can get to a bridge game online. They don't need to know online anything. They just go on and they play, play bridge. There's a set of rules underpinning that. So they know what it is. That's, that's the justice layer right there. A set of rules that everybody gets. Okay. And we're starting with music. And music is an easy place to start because everybody loves it. And we can convey messages at the same time uh, about a fair and free world that we all want to create. And so um, now, once you do that for music, you can do it for anything, right? You can, you know, music is not just music. It's art. It's cinematography. It's it's bookkeeping. It's accounting. It's management services. It's everything. You know, it's, you know, now you have a global environment of contracts and, um, you know, just like that creative commons legal layer model of, you know, machine language, legal layer, and then explanations, people can learn it. I mean, you know, the, the advantage of where we are in the United States today is you've got more high school kids paying attention to their civic rights than they ever have paid attention to ever since, you know, I became a parent, you know, um, everyone's, uh, everyone's aware. And so now is the time to, you know, get the message out and to scale. Well, the, the communications have scaled. So all we have to do is put something that people know about on top of it. and, um, and then maybe we have an opportunity. and identity is the key because I think there what we're saying to people at the very start is to get into this game you have to have you have to be trusted. So we need an identity that we can trust. And that's step one. There's, you don't get to the contracts until you go in first as who I am who you are and that I take certain responsibility to be a trusted person. Uh, and if I, and if I act badly, there's consequence to that. I can't play in any of these communities if I start you know lying, if I start you know making up another identity and try to move from place to place. That's the way the internet works today. You, you can't fix that. That's become a, that's become a culture. that's become a norm. We need to create an alternative space in a country where we're taking this sort of Wild West mentality and taming it. Uh, so we'll tame it with music to start with. And then and, and actually we'll, we'll expand almost immediately to art, because I still remember in my trips to Haiti when we were doing our art contests. And all of a sudden the word got out that there was somebody here and they were doing music contests. Next thing you know, I had artists lining up hundreds of them in the street with the art that they had created and they wanted me to help them and i just felt terribly that i wasn't in the position to do anything about it at that point so you you got to bring the artists into it at the very beginning and then you you know you keep that creative expression as the first step forward
0: so i know we got to wrap up in a few minutes but h- how do we get from you know music to privacy right how, how do how do we use the sort of this you know kind of extend this justice layer to you know what we talk about here which is privacy and anonymity and protecting people from surveillance
2: well the easy way to say it is that until now we have a society that says laws protect us the privacy laws protect us well i don't want to go through the long articles uh that i've written on this stuff that says yeah. Laws of disclosure, your intermediaries that have to tell you, you know, three months late, three years late that your identity was compromised and then you're entitled to uh, have a free service for a year to protect you. That's that's not privacy protection. That's just minimizing the liability of the intermediaries. That's all that is. Um
1: you talk about like ending re well, or Jean talks about ending redress, right? Like that if your model of privacy is what you just described as redress, then you don't actually have privacy. You're just you're you've got a broken system.
2: You have a broken system that's based on the assumption that laws work when they don't. You have an incredible privacy compliance world. I mean, there's, yes. there's huge lots business. of
1: lawyers making lots of money.
2: And, you know, and it's all about making sure that your terms of service and your privacy policies comply with this, that, and the other, and then you train people to do this, that, and the other, Uh, you know, but at the end of the day, I don't see that as the model uh, for what we're talking about. What we're talking about is to use the identity field in such a way so that people understand that they have an invisibility cloak. They have it to use. This is if you are given an invisibility cloak and you know what it is and you know how to use it, there is no better protection of your privacy than end-to-end encryption. If you wanted to spend your whole life encrypting everything from your, from everything that we do, from the, from every email that we send out, if we still use email, from everything that goes through the internet, from end-to-end encryption, if you make sure that you do that, it's very difficult for hackers to, I mean, some will get through, but they have to have a reason to be coming after you. I mean, they go for honeypots. They go for big, you know, big swaths of data, you know, where they can get in and then, you know, rummage around and use their technology to make it you know, worth their while. But in this new system that we're talking about, it's creating new norms where the duty of each individual to protect their own identity is upon them. And if they decide to give that identity away to an intermediary, that's their choice. And then, you know, no law protects that. That's a private contract decision. Uh, that that they've made in those areas. Now, you know, there may be reasons for laws even there in those kinds of settings, because maybe people abuse that situation. Uh, and we'll have to think about that. But I do believe in terms of privacy, it, it's upon each one of us, as we move into this new space of self-sovereign identity to understand the potential of the uh, invisibility cloak or encryption like Is is the way I see it.
0: That's super helpful. Okay, I think we're going to wrap it up. We'll stitch these different little bits together into one smooth episode. Jeff, thank you for your time. I'd thank love you. to chat more about, um, you know, kind of just really where this this layer goes, and 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 there's a lot more questions I have in terms of how we make it anonymous, right? How do we go beyond privacy, and how do we actually enable people to move? through the justice layer without revealing all their identity. But I think that's something that probably you and Kali have talked about in the past. Um,
2: Well, we have a program coming up in February uh, where uh, we'd love members of your audience to join us and participate. It's the second round of building the justice layer of the internet. Uh, And I pretty much have, Uh, spent my time convening gathering groups together we've got the internet identity groups we've got the human rights groups we've got the lawyers who are interested in technology um you know everybody yourself and all your audience can show up we'll have spaces for people to participate uh, where should
0: people go to find out
2: about it uh on the techforjustice.org website so t-e-c-h-f-o-r justice justice. techforjustice.org Dot O-R-G, I will put it in it says, the uh, episode notes.
0: Okay. That's where they go. Fantastic. We'll put it in the episode notes. Um, happy Thanksgiving week, everybody. Thank you, Kalia. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Um, on behalf of PSA Today, you can go to the PSA Today We now have a website. Woohoo! Um, woohoo. Little minor victories. Um, Wednesday, November 25th. This is.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Bye.